And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This episode of the VanCast is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. Drancher, look, I know it was NFL playoff weekend, conference championship Sunday. We cannot talk about football until the end of the show. I know oh, how oh, much oh, you oh, want oh, to oh, talk oh. about football. I know. I, I know, but you can't you can't duck. Like of course, we're going to focus on hockey. We're a hockey podcast. As sure as T. Higgins' hands are reliable, this podcast is focused on the Canucks. But today's episode is also brought to you by Cincinnati Bengals second wide receiver T. Higgins. And I just wanted to note that off the top, and then we'll and then we'll wait. And we'll do hey, it brought to you by Cooper Cup, who should have been the <laughs> NFL MVP. But listen, before we get there, let's uh, let's get to the Canucks and and the meat of why we're here. And uh, you know, well, we're, we're always we're always here to stay focused on the cup. We we are <laughs> we are, and you know, we saw we saw two games since our last pod that were two completely different teams. And and I'm not just talking about different opponents because certainly Winnipeg's going one way and, and Calgary's still in pretty good shape here. But my goodness, like two completely different efforts from the Vancouver Canucks. 5-1 win against the Jets and a one nothing loss. Uh, yeah, they managed the loss. They got a point, but they were awful in that game. As good as they were against yeah. Winnipeg, they were awful against Calgary. And we've got Chicago coming up tonight. Uh, back-to-back games Monday, Tuesday. But what do you make of... Like if I'm... If I'm Patrick Alvine and I'm looking at that, and and look, we know that he was doing his diligence and research and watched a lot beforehand as he was in the mix for this job. What am I thinking at that point? Yeah, I mean that's that Saturday game was as bad as it gets as for, for as far as I'm concerned. I mean they looked brutal. Um, maybe maybe inevitable after some of the absences. Right now that you're kind of like gearing back and having your full team. 
you kind of have a letdown performance like that. But that was a really, really poorly played hockey game, especially on the Canucks end. Right. I mean, I I think it looked like a normal game for Calgary with Demko kind of doing Demko stuff. It did not look like a normal game for the Canucks. They generated nothing. They killed penalties well. I mean, I, if there's a silver lining, really I guess you well. can say like, what that. What was that? That was incredible. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's important, too, to note that, like, since the NHL COVID pause, right, the Canucks have come back and they've won five of their last 13 games, right? They're 5-4-4. Four, and four. Uh, Credit to them. They've picked up a ton of points. But this hasn't been, like, a continuation of the Canucks' climb up the standings. You know, like, they haven't gained enough ground. They really haven't. They've, they've been uh, a 500 team the last 12. They've won five of the last 13. And I mean 500 by point percentage, not true 500. Um, they haven't gained enough ground over the course of the last, you know, month. And I think that makes what has to happen next rather inevitable, to be totally honest with you. Uh, but, but look, I mean, these two games, Chicago Monday, Nashville Tuesday, uh, those will bring the Canucks to 15 games since the uh, since they returned if for that brief California road trip. They've dealt with a ton of absences. It's not fair to say that this team has been at full strength or uh, to note that this team has had to deal with longer COVID-related absences than any of their opponents as a result of, you know, border issues. Uh, but, you know, that like credit to them. They've They've, you know, the positive spin on it. They've picked up points in 9 of 13 despite all of this. But you know, I just look at it and, and kind of see what I've seen all year, right? Like, it's a middling five-on-five team with a porous penalty kill, far too dependent on stellar goaltending performances. Like, I even thought in that Winnipeg game, they played really well offensively. The Jets' defense was a joke, like a disaster. And yet, that game easily could have been a 4-4 overtime game, if not for Spencer Martin being outrageously good. Well, and then how about Thatcher Demko on Saturday night? His first game in what two Incredible. weeks, and and I he know. was outrageously good. And you wouldn't have expected that because when they've had previous lulls, it's taken him a couple of games to go. You know, he would I wouldn't say he's poor at the start, but he'd be ordinary or or just good. And and you know, before three games in, when things would take off a little bit, I thought it might take him a little longer. I thought he was exceptional. He was. He was Thatcher Demko. Thatcher Demko is exceptional. Proved it again. He'll prove it again. Probably one of these uh, next two games. Whether it's against Nashville or Chicago, no, but you, you understand what I'm saying. I just that it, I thought it would take a little bit of time for him to get to exceptional, maybe even a game. Yeah, I mean, you would expect him to need a little bit of time to find his rhythm, but I mean, he was he was ex- ex- he was Thatcher Demko. Like Thatcher Demko at this point never surprises me when he's outrageously good, right? I mean, that's my baseline expectation for him after what he's done this season, and uh, you know, that's a that's a massive arrow in the Canucks' quiver. It's just the rest of it, right? Like, over the course of this 13-game stretch where they've gone 5-4-4, four, and four, they're second in the NHL and even strength save percentage. And that's despite Demko's absence because of COVID protocols. It's despite Spencer Martin starting three games and Mike DiPietro starting one. Um, and, you know, like, that's, that's amazing. But also, at some point, at some point, you don't get elite goaltending, right? Like, at some point, even if you have a really good goaltender, unless you employ Igor Shosturkin at the moment, <laughs> you can't count on necessarily having that every stretch of the season. And if you're not capitalizing when you've got it, you know, if you're not gaining ground when you've got it, I mean, that's, that's the mark of a team that needs significant improvement.
Does it surprise you at all that they basically played him after a morning skate? I mean, and yeah, he'd been doing some ice work on his own, but does it? do we read more into the fact that Halak didn't get that first start against Calgary? Because he's been here longer. He's been back from COVID longer. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know. I don't know what we read in anything. I mean, it's not like they kept Spencer Martin on the roster, right? They're going to go into this back to back and presumably play Halak once, right? I mean, one would think so. Yeah, but by not playing him against Calgary, knowing you were going to play him in the back to back, right? Yeah, it it just buys you a little bit more time if there's a move to be made. Am I am I wrong there? Like to suggest that they should have even considered playing Halak on Saturday instead and haven't for that specific reason. Yeah, no, you're right. And and Halak, sorry, Halak will start uh, Monday in Chicago. So they'll go uh, Halak Monday, and then hopefully we get to see the Soros-Demco show um, on Tuesday in Nashville. So that'll be, that that could be a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, they'll they'll get Halak to nine games played, and then they'll go into the All-Star break and, and have a week between games. And we'll kind of see what it looks like on the other side of that, right? I mean, you know, buying that time does matter. Um, I think, I think it gives you some additional flex, but you know, Halak's going to hit that bonus at some point. And, and right when they get back, it's Coyotes Islanders back to back and Demko will have been at, at all-star weekend. So no way you're going to throw him back into both of those. Um, so yeah, I mean, you buy yourself a little bit more time, but not much. And, and I think all indications now are that Halak's not going to wave anyway. So I, you know, this is going to be a tricky one for the Canucks to navigate, and and I just expect them to ultimately end up, you know, having to eat that bonus. Yeah, it seems inevitable at this point. Um, you know, and for a million and a half, you know, there there probably are other priorities. But before we get off the two games here, I do want to talk about the best and worst of JT Miller. And we saw the hat trick, uh, first three goals. Uh, you know, Daryl at Save on Foods quaking in his boots that he didn't get up to five, so that he'd have to pay out a lot of money. Um, and then in the Saturday game where they were all bad, but you go into that overtime moment and there should have been a penalty call. I get it when he came in and, and had his hands, um, hooked, hit, stick knocked out of his hands, whatever you want to say. I forget who the player was, but then he turned around and was done. It was over, like just sauntered off into the corner and eventually to the bench and they scored. And, you know, like many of us on Twitter looked at that and thought, what the hell? Uh, and maybe in stronger language, while others said, what do you mean? Like, he didn't have his stick. What was he going to do on the back check anyway? He knew it. And, you know, for me, I just think you always work. And and maybe when you're at the NHL level, you know, you you, you treat pros differently. I don't know. But I think you do everything you can, even if it's f- skate as fast as you can to the bench or somebody else can get on the ice. Like, you, you just can't mail it in in that moment. And I asked Bruce Boudreaux about it afterwards, and Bruce was pretty critical, saying, yeah, that was a terrible play. Uh, That can't happen, especially in overtime. We're going to have a conversation about it, and it won't happen again. Um, What did you make of that? I thought it was relatively open shut, right? It was um, a frustrated play, and, you know, I I thought it was a selfish one. For sure, like, but like, are we, are we making it. too much of it? Are we making too much of it just because he probably had no well, chance to affect the play anywhere? Did you like? No, I mean, you you gotta it, it. Even if you're just racing to get back, you impact the timing. You know, like that was just like a three on two the whole way, and that's um that's a problem. That's a problem always in in a, like, especially when it's Johnny Gaudreau uh, carrying the puck. So. You know, I, I mean, I put it this way. 
I think we're not making too much out of it to say that it was the wrong play or that it was a selfish play. But I also think to extrapolate that into more than uh, a snapshot of a, of a frustrated moment where, you know, honestly, JT Miller probably should have drawn a penalty. He was clearly annoyed and he didn't, he didn't respond per, like the way you'd love, like to see him respond like that. That's all it is. It's not, I don't think a window into something larger about why you should trade him or who he is necessarily. I just think it was, you know, the wrong play to make in that moment. The yeah, wrong reaction. So I'll, I'll meet you halfway. I don't think it's something that should be extrapolated into them needing to trade him. But I do think it's part of a snapshot of who he is, right? Like we, 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 when he's doing well, there becomes this narrative of who the true captain of the Vancouver Canucks is, Vancouver Canucks is, and how indispensable he is and how it's always like this. And he's dragging people into the fight. And we go back to last year's COVID where he was the guy that stood up and forced them to make that change, you know, to the schedule, essentially by calling them out on the fact that it was borderline unsafe and, and all of that. But there is another side to JT Miller that I don't think people talk enough about. And what we saw in those two games is the good and bad of JT Miller. Because, and I tweeted this after, and it certainly got some reaction, but when when JT Miller is on, like, you know, he's a guy that kind of leads from the front, and sometimes you need somebody to lead from the back. And by that, I mean when things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. And when things aren't going well, that is JT Miller. You know, like he's he's a champ. He's everything you think he is when things are going well. And when things are not going well, he becomes part of the problem. He becomes a bit of an emotional anchor, right? I mean, it, it's like Todd Bertuzzi 2.0 on some levels in, in that way, where he becomes this brooding cloud in the locker room, right? He's, as much as, you know, people like him and respect him, but there there is a good and bad and the emotion of him. Maybe that's what makes the best of JT Miller, but it is something that everybody has to manage, if you understand what I'm saying. Well, he's definitely a big personality, and I do think there are player types or personality types where, you know, they can give you an extra gear when things are going well, but maybe aren't the guy who, who can help you dig out when things aren't. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if Miller matches that description. It, it makes sense that it that it might. Um, but again, I, I just look at it and, you know, there are there are moments like giveaways and some moments where. Um, you know, JT Miller has moments where you're like, oh boy, but I don't know that he's, I don't know that it's frequent enough that I'd call it a determinant of who he is. You know, I think for the most part, but for the most part, JT Miller gets back. If that makes sense. Sure. He does. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I like, I get that. But that frustration moment, uh, you know, when, when we would see it, we saw it a year ago, like when things were really going bad and there were turnovers that were happening from him, he didn't necessarily want to own the fact that this might've been an issue and he didn't care what the numbers said about that type of play. And, you know, there, there was a bit of that there when things were going bad, that he's not necessarily the guy to help you dig out when it's going bad. And when I say, you know, I'm not talking about within a specific game, but if there's a run, you know, I, I think he gets caught up in it, right? You know, as opposed to a guy like Horvat, where there's this unwavering level of consistency and the highs aren't as high mm. and the lows aren't as low, right? And and sometimes that leadership is more critical. Yeah, it, it definitely can be. Um, you know, again, I think I think Miller, yeah, Miller's an interesting case for sure and, and an interesting player. And Vancouver's probably Vancouver's best forward, right? I mean, at the moment. And can't argue that. And uh, yeah, and this yeah, is not about this is not about who he is 
um, you know, in and, terms and of I always just, cut, you know, me, I always cut, I always cut really good players some slack. <laughs> you do. Yeah, you absolutely do. You know, do. like, just like that's, I, I really like good players and I cut them slack in terms of how I analyze them. Um, you know, Miller is, Miller's defensive results this season have been a little bit off uh, his career norms anyway. I, I tend to think that's a product of playing more center. I, I, I mean, I think, I think he's, uh, a bit more effective driving play on the wing than he is in the middle. Um, you know, there's some there's some production that maybe doesn't match two-way impact this year, which is not what we've seen traditionally from JT. And, and I don't know if it's playing center. I don't know if it's age. I don't know what it, what's going on there necessarily. Um, I have some thoughts, but I do think I do think all of this stuff is is stuff that you have to be wide-eyed about in determining whether or not you know, two years down the line, you're better off with JT Miller, you know, having signed for seven and a half times six million or, you know, seven and a half million in cap space plus whatever, whatever assets you net in a deal. And, and I'm sure that's what Patrick Alvin and, and Jim Rutherford are working through now in figuring out what's next for this club. And, and I think that's where you get to this moment where the names being bandied about in public now, you know, Connor Garland, Miller, uh, Tanner Pearson was dropped by Friedman on the 32 thoughts podcast on Monday morning. I mean, you know, it feels like the list is getting longer. Uh, it feels like it doesn't include Bo Horvat, but almost everyone who's not named Horvat or Pedersen seems like, you know, they're going to be evaluated pretty closely in terms of what makes the most sense for this franchise. And you know, should that surprise you? Or? It's hard to argue that that's not the right call. Like, this is the other thing. I kind of sometimes feel like I talk about this team in a zone that is divorced from how the rest of the league perceives it, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like when I looked it up yesterday and I was like, wait, the Canucks have, you know, won four of their last 12 and five of their last 13 since returning to the COVID break. And, you know, they're basically a 500 team over t- the last 12 games. Like, they haven't gained at all. Um, in fact, they've lost further ground in the Pacific. And it's like, as I'm looking through those facts, I'm like, man, sometimes I have to work really hard just to come back to a factual baseline because of the way that I feel like this this market has seen the entire Boudreaux era, you know, as this like unmitigated wave of wins, right? And it, and. In a lot of ways, the team has played a lot better under Boudreaux, and yet over the course of the past month, they've gained no ground. They're still 21st in the NHL by point percentage. Like As a result of getting three points in their last two games, they've passed Columbus and the Red Wings in point percentage, and it's like, that sucks. Like That sucks. It's not close to good enough, and I don't feel like that reality is coloring the conversation that we're having locally around this team very much. But it, I, I can guarantee you it's significantly coloring Jim Rutherford's view of this team because one thing he's able to do is come in here with none of the baggage of having argued about and covered and insisted on all of this working. And I think if you come in with that set of assumptions, like, yeah, surgery is, is the most likely diagnosis, like the most likely course of treatment here. And that's not wrong. That's not incorrect. Like, that's probably what this team does need. They do need prospects and assets and cap flexibility. Like, that's that's pretty much it. That's that's as simple and as you can put it. 
And what are the three things that Rutherford is, has checked in that he thinks this team needs? Draft picks and young players and cap space. Well, good, good. I think he's got a clear-eyed view of it. And that's probably, you know, that's probably the right route forward. But I don't know, I don't know how ready this market is for that, considering, you know, the form under Boudreaux overall, even though that form has significantly succumbed to gravity uh, since the league got back up and running after Christmas. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, Drancer, let's go through some of these names. We mentioned JT Miller, and that's the one that creates the most emotional response amongst Canuck fans because we understand how good this player is. We understand how critical he is to the success of this team. And there's so many ways to look at it because, you know, yeah, we, we talk about the players that are going to be past their best when the Canucks are in their contention window based on who their young guys are. But those players might not get to where they need to be without a few of these key players around still. And nobody is more key than JT Miller outside of, you know, the big four, which is uh, Pedersen, Hughes, Horvat and Demko. Like he's the next guy. And, you know, we've talked about who's going to fit salary cap-wise, whether it's going to be Besser, um, whether it's going to be Horvat, or whether it's going to be Miller. And certainly, I've always been of the belief that you can't have all three. You're going to have to give up one. And which one's it going to be? And with the contract situation around JT Miller and what that number's going to look like and where the most value is to move on from him, has anything changed in your mind as far as Miller? You know, and and what can we see happen between now and the deadline as far as he goes this year? I mean. Well, so JT is an interesting one, obviously, because he's going to have the most demand and because of his contract status, right? Uh, for me, it's the guys like Connor Garland, whose name floated up on Hockey Night, that are more complicated because Garland has been, like, by a lot of the advanced metrics, Garland's been their best forward. Uh, so I'd probably say second or third because his ice time is not top line level ice time, but you know, really good value, right age, uh, strong contract, likely to be surplus value for the majority of it, four or five years at least. Um, you know, unique. He's come in. There's not. I mean, what what else could you have asked of Connor Garland if you're the Canucks this year, right? I mean, he's done everything you would have wanted, and you know, it hasn't mattered for this team in that in that the team's still not good enough. But Connor Garland's an exceptional piece, and he's signed long term. Like the thing about the Miller talk or the Besser talk, is that Miller only has two years left. Like, that makes sense to make a decision on, 
you know, if not at the deadline, then certainly this offseason. Connor Garland, to me, is a totally different level of aggression. And that was sort of um, an int- a more interesting one for me because of what it tells us perhaps about what Rutherford wants stylistically. You know, whether it's whether it's a size or speed thing or just a north-south speed thing. As opposed to Gar- Garland's, um, you know, curly cues all up and down the up and down the offensive end, um, that was that that for me was the most telling sort of um, talking point coming out of this weekend was that you know the Canucks might might consider surgery of a of a totally different magnitude than just making some tough decisions on guys who are expiring in a couple of years. I, you know, as as for as for Miller to to bring it back to Miller specifically, you know. It's impossible to rank sort of where you'd sell which guy until you have a sense of both the return. And I think on Miller, we know that the return would be significant. Three to four assets um, is Pierre Lebrun's reported ask. And, and that makes sense. That's consistent with some of what, uh, what I'm hearing in the industry. The sort of other side of it is what does an extension look like? Is it doable in Vancouver? And, you know, I, I mean, if it's four years at seven million per takes JT Miller through his age 32 season, like for me, that's, you know, that's the deal you win. That's the deal you win. Miller's really good. But if it starts to look longer or larger than that, I mean, that's something you have to be really careful about. And so not understanding where exactly those um, two sort of aspects are. Uh, you know, colors, colors are discussion, but I, I do think it's a reasonable course of action, a reasonable course forward to move some of your good players to get your cap flexibility up. And and for me, it's like you got to go into the offseason with 23, like like low 20s, but not 20 million in cap space. If you're going to renovate this roster successfully, that to me is like the major bar. And as much as fans would like to see the Canucks clear cap space by making like a Dickinson trade and a Hamannick trade, it's like you, you're not getting there without moving some good pieces, right? Um, and moving good pieces for cost-controlled pieces, for me, those are the deals where maybe you take a bit of a step back, but it, it's not necessarily going to be as big a step back as you'd expect from the return, like from an a- analysis of the quick trade, because of the cap space you also gain in the move. And, and so to me, those are the key things for the Canucks to do. If you're able to send out, even if they're good players, you know, high salary for futures or entry level guys or affordable players, then you're also getting an additional five million in cap space. Um, Canucks are projected to have about 13.5 million in space. If you can carve out an additional 10 for next season, I think that pays huge dividends or could pay huge dividends especially if the club is disciplined and clever uh, about some of the subsequent moves. So, you know, that those are sort of that's sort of the broad shape of the trade talk around JT Miller. And what one thing I really don't understand is the outrage, like the idea that like, you know, you can't trade a guy this good. And it's like you, you have to consider trading a guy this good when you're who the Canucks are at the moment, which is a middling team with no prospects and very little cap space and very little in the way of meaningful future cap flexibility uh, and not even your full coterie of draft picks, right? I mean, in those circumstances, everything has to be on the table, has to be. And, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see where it goes. I, I don't think 
I don't think keeping him and trying to sign him is necessarily a mistake either. If the dollars and cents make sense, it's just about the overall big picture course that this team needs to track or, or tack to. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Like that, straight up, there's just, there's, this team just needs a lot. And number one for me is cap space. I think number one for Jim Rutherford is cap space. I think he said it. Um, we'll, we'll sort of, we'll sort of, I don't know how you get there without moving some good pieces, though. That's right. Uh, you want to move a lot of cap space? Well, good players get paid a lot. I mean, it's just simply how it works. And in the case of Miller, like, wow, when you said four years at $7 million, I can't believe the term would be that low to get JT Miller done. No, that's uh, what I'm saying. That Like, I'm giving you a example of a contract that I would be like, if I was analyzing it, right, four times $7 million. If I'm analyzing that when it's signed, we're coming on this podcast, we're saying, wow, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, no, we're, we're coming on this podcast and saying that's a massive win. Massive win. So if you're not looking at something like that, though, then that has to color, you know, that has to color how you approach his Canucks future. Yeah, well, there's no doubt. And when you hear the names that are coming, how much of it is who's being shopped versus who's being asked for? The asked about, like, oh, players ask about him. They always ask about our good players. That's like a classic squirreling tactic among NHL general managers. Names don't get out unless they're unless there's teams around the league that feel like it's possible, right? Like names don't get out, typically speaking, for no reason. It's not just that a team called and asked about that and then went and told a reporter and then it went out. It's like there are teams that believe that player is available and they probably believe that for a reason. There are organizations discussing that name to the point that it got out. You know, so typically I I think... You know, oh, oh, well, of course they're asking about their good players. Yeah, uh, that happens all the time. When the name gets out, it's because there's something a little more credible going on beneath the surface, usually. That's my view of it anyway. Yeah, I mean, and, and what's, the, what's the right amount of volume, right? Like for, for Benning, like if all of a sudden you had deals on the table for Miller, Garland, Pearson, all of them, uh, w- do, you, do you swing on all of them? And, you know, like what does that do to the current room, the culture, you know, like... You know, I always say there's a fine line to this because losing. But what are you? What are you protecting? What are you protecting on that? I don't know. I'm asking you that question, right? Like, do you? Yeah, do you I don't need know. to give like, them I some semblance I'm of not competitiveness? Enough. Yeah, but I'm saying, do you? Do you give them some semblance of competitiveness this season? Like, do you have to still allow them to be competitive? Right? Like, I mean, do you? Well, if you, you don't lose... want to go full Habs, <laughs> right? Explain that. Well, the Habs, it's getting embarrassing. I mean, you're yeah. you're at the point now where. Like they're they're trying to not put Caden Primo, for example, in positions to fail, and and yet he ends up coming into games when they're already down and getting shelled. Still, like you don't want to be in that spot where all of your young guys are getting thrown in positions that are completely brutal. But you also like you know protecting the culture of the room or what have you. And and this is this is another this is another thing I think is worth talking about. I'm. I mean, I feel more removed from the locker room, from the Canucks locker room right now than I have in a long time, right? I mean, with the exception of last season, perhaps, but it's like, we're not around. I don't know. Guys barely talk on Zoom anymore, right? I mean, we talk to a guy once a month. And That's not often. Boy, the media scrutiny, though, Drancer. Anyway, I, I, but oh, I, I digress. Know. It's withering. <laughs> um, 
you know, we're not around enough. Like we're, we're, we're just not. And so, you know, does this team have the type of winning culture you need to be really protective of? I don't know. I don't know. No, but if but- you completely go in the crapper the rest of this season and things get to the point where it was like last year coming out of COVID, where it was simply uncompetitive and you're just doing everything you can to just, you know, mail it in and get the hell out of Dodge. Like those things are difficult to recover from. Right. And I always say totally. that when a team loses as consistently, you know, as the Oilers did. You know, it does become cultural. It does become systemic. And I don't know oh, where Vancouver is have. in that. I, well, this no, team's, right, this but, team's made the playoffs once in seven years. Absolutely. Right. So that becomes really difficult. So how much of a step backwards do you need to take in order to take a step forward? Before we answer that, we'll take one more quick break. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So let's let's talk about that. When do you get to that point? Well, here here's what I want to say. Like the last over the course of the past 13 games, right? The Canucks have barely had a full roster at any point. Demko goes down, Spencer Martin steps up, right? They've been without um, you know, everyone basically as for some length of time. Besser, Miller, uh they've been without Bo Horvat. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like the Lamico line, you know, like, <laughs> and, and that's good. That's that to me is actually a sign that, you know, with with everything that Boudreaux seems to be getting out of everybody here, you know. Maybe maybe you don't fear the step back quite so much. Maybe that's the luxury afforded to you by the performance you've got out of one of the winningest regular season coaches in NHL history, right? I mean, maybe that's part of what allows you to consider some of these moves. So, you know, additionally, I'd, I'd come back and just add, like, you know, the, you have to, you have to, I think, be willing to, take a step back that doesn't like you have to you have to be willing to accept that you can take a step back in the contemporary NHL but if you do it with direction and if you do it with the right mix of things coming back you can actually sort of stay in place or or even have more fun even though you're maybe not quite as good because at least you have direction. And the example that I'd use here is the Columbus Blue Jackets, right? The Columbus Blue Jackets are 23rd in the NHL by point percentage. Well, they were probably always going to be a bottom five team regardless of whether or not they kept Seth Jones. But having dealt Seth Jones, they're still basically where they would be anyway, except now they have some meaningful direction. And they're probably going to cut it you know, they're probably going to take another step back with, with deals for guys like Corpusalo, maybe Max Domi, some of their expirings. Um, you know, you can take a step back without going as far back as you think, but the marginal return from 22nd being the 22nd place team to being the 25th place team, like 
It's not worth being protective of those extra five points. You can't. You can't. It doesn't matter. You need to you need to be gaining flexibility and like at the end of the day, mediocrity is the most soul sucking thing in the NHL. Being constantly just not good enough, um, that is the worst place to be. Because you're not getting the high picks, you're not making the playoffs, or if you do make the playoffs, you're not there for very long. Um, like you spend your whole career in that sort of realm, the way Bo Horvat has. Like by the end, you know what I mean. That's where it's really tough. Losing losing games for one season, so long as you're structured to avoid putting some of your prized young assets in really bad spots. Um, you know, I think you have to be willing to. To play in that sandbox. Well, and, th- and this club simply doesn't have many prized young assets. You know, the one guy that we've been we've been calling for is Jack Rathbone. I know we thought probably a week ago that he was just a couple of days from getting a recall. Uh, do you see that situation changing anytime soon? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, he's had some tough injury luck. He had COVID at the wrong time. Um, you know, clearly they like Brad Hunt. Boudreau likes Brad Hunt in the lineup. Uh, Brad Hunt's played well, uh, frankly. Yeah, but even you, you know, even Yulson playing the other night instead of having the availability of having, yeah. you know, of having. Um, well, but then you're then you're moving a guy on to his offside. Like, are you you're not going to throw Jack Rathbone in on the right side? He's never played at the pro level. No, but but Hunt has um, a bit. I guess he did in Minnesota. You're right. But then you're playing a Rathbone Hunt pair, or you're playing Hunt with OEL, uh, which I don't think they're going to want to do. So sure. you know, I'm just saying. I I think it's I think that's a matter of time. Um, you know, I, you have to see what Jack Rathbone looks like with Bruce Boudreau as coach. You have to see what Jack Rathbone looks like in a in this new like pinch aggressively punt and hunt system. Not that it's a whole new system, but it's certainly different in terms of some of the plays that are preferred. I do think you want to see what he looks like under Boudreau uh, this season because you know there might be something there, there might be something meaningful there, and that might impact how you how you plan through this off season. But, you know, I think it's I think it's worth seeing for sure. And and I'd be excited to see it. I think the I think the world of Jack Rathbone, I think he's really good. So I hope we get to see it soon. I expect we will get to see it soon. But I'm not surprised necessarily considering all that he's dealt with, you know, the injuries and then the and then the covid um, getting covid right at the wrong time. I'm not surprised that it's taken this amount. Like I'm not surprising. I'm not surprised that it's taken a bit. So we're uh, two games away from the All Star break. They play Chicago tonight, Nashville tomorrow, back to back. Other than the goalie splitting games, what are we? What are we expecting? What's the What's the high bar for these two teams in these two games, or for this team? In well, these you two need games? you need points, man. Like you need you need three or four at least. A split a split doesn't help you. Like you're you're down to ten percent playoff odds. You're at a point where the rest of the league just doesn't think you're making the playoffs. And so if the goal is playoffs, like you need four. But if the if the goal is just like keep the flame burning for another couple of weeks on the other side, then you need and you need at least three. You know, well, I think tonight's the important even one. Just two points would hose you. Tonight's the important one because I mean, of these two teams, Chicago is certainly the easier mark. But more importantly, you need to bounce back from just a brutal effort on Saturday night outside of the goaltender. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And and we're at a moment too where you know, other than the Jets, I don't see any of these teams really fading. Maybe San Jose a little bit, but um, yeah. I mean, there's just so much. There's just so much competition for those last couple of wild card spots in the West and. You know, the Canucks are well behind the eight ball. Um, you can't keep chugging along at 500 if you're going to if you're going to make a run. You have to start making that run. 
and it you know not, not I'm not saying it's a death knell if you don't come out with uh with at least three points, but if you come out with zero, you're in a lot of trouble, and that's a real possibility if you don't beat Chicago on Monday night. So it's a it's a vital game. Well, I mean, and it does it, for what it's worth, right? I mean, there are two sides of it because it could be the the death knell that allows Jim Rutherford to have the clarity he needs to make the moves he should make, right? As opposed to kind of staying in that mucky middle for a longer period of time here. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, you know, you, you want to go think into these. Got clarity at this point. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I think you. Go I do. Wanna... I, I do. That's that would be. I bet you, Jim Rutherford knows exactly what he wants to do. But with this team, I'm not saying he knows exactly what moves. But I think he has a good sense of, of what needs to happen in terms of, you know, making them like I think I think he knows that the roster needs work. And, and I think the players are pretty close to being out of runway to convince him otherwise. Yeah, you're probably right. It looked good for a while. And even though the form has been better, ultimately, the results are where they are. And it, it's funny. I ask about Rathbone only because he's the only prospect. Right. And, you know as far as one ripe enough to talk about being here in any meaningful way. And and they need more of that. They need, you know, you talk about the cap flexibility, you talk about the prospect pool, you talk about all of it. I mean, they, you, when you just look down there and that's the name we keep coming back to, that's the reason because there's only one. Um, so certainly organizationally, a lot of questions uh, need to get answered, but more importantly, they need to start charting the direction or start working towards that direction, which, which, as you say, uh, Rutherford probably has a lot more clarity than than we necessarily do uh, outside of that. So we'll see what the next two games bring. Um, let's dive into some football talk, my friend. We have got a Rams Bengals Super Bowl. You ready to make your picks, or do you still want to dive into what happened last week or this weekend? Just like we all expected. Yeah, I, I had Kansas City and the Rams. I'm shocked. I'm which shocked. part are you shocked at? The Bengals. I'm shocked that yeah. the Bengals beat the Chiefs. Especially, especially with the way the first half looked like, you know, I had the Chiefs in the over and I was sitting pretty and I was feeling very comfortable that that was going to hit. And then Tyreek Hill gets stuffed at the one. And, and I felt like that changed the game. And then, you know, we're everyone's going to talk about Joe Burrow and Joe Burrow deserves to get talked about. He made some great plays with his legs, um, you know, uh, made some great throws. He's probably the most accurate quarterback in football right now. but. That game was won by the Bengals defense, which made a really crucial adjustment in the second half. And they started dropping eight. And I felt like the Chiefs just weren't disciplined enough to adjust to a world in which they were going to struggle to generate chunk yardage. Like if the Chiefs had just been smart and disciplined about checkdowns for the rest of the game, I think they still win easily. But that's not who they are. And then, so, so what you're saying is I'm right. The Chiefs lost the football game because that well, adjustment. Of a, Bengals, a smart Bengals adjustment. They, yeah, but they that adjustment dropped, of dropping eight, eight with one spy was dropping eight with one spy uh, on Mahomes. They dropped eight on 45% of snaps in the second half. I, I saw you the believe number. that? I, like, believe, no, I, you I, believe like, that, I totally though? believe that because that was the formula to start the season against this team. Everybody playing coverage and forcing them to be disciplined. And it wasn't just that. Run the freaking ball, right? Like, that's what teams dare you to do. And in the first half, did you see them gashing them? They were owning first down. They were getting seven and eight yards on run plays, and they stopped doing it, right? And this is the problem yeah, is they, they got wild. to a point midway through the season, they showed that discipline, and they didn't this time. And Mahomes cost yeah. them the game. And you know me. I'm a big Mahomes guy. 
right? He's the most exciting player in football. I love watching him play. I would have loved a Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes and the chance to see those spectacular moments over and over. And we're denied that because he played the worst half, arguably, of his NFL career. Patrick Mahomes singularly cost him that football game. I mean, and you can make the case Andy Reid did as well. Yeah, and then to top it all off, I thought they got way too cute with five minutes to play. Like, bleeding the clock, the 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 Chiefs should have been just trying, just just score, just go take just the lead. Just score, just score, and, and, and the amount that... It's not like the he, Bengals were moving the ball at will. No, they weren't. And and the amount you know? that he, he had to hold on to the football, or sorry, that he chose to hold on to the football, where he took those two massive losses when they yeah, were down at the seven-yard line. Like, don't tell me the Bengals' defense won this game. Patrick Mahomes and the they Chiefs' did. offense flat out lost the game. They This is a, this is mean, a clear... Did cut case of one team losing and again like Joe Burrow when he was at LSU and I covered him in the national championship like Burrow was awesome right they got the one screen pass from P Ryan at the end of the half late and it got him in it and let them you know feel like okay we've got some life here and he made two plays with his legs that were remarkable and your boy T Higgins made some plays after a couple of early drops one of which I told you should have been PI I know um, I was worried so, that it wasn't I thought I thought I didn't understand why he tried to catch it with one hand and you text me back I'm like I'm like, you were right about Higgins. So just so our readers know, even though I'm going to stunt on you for being right about Higgins, I thought I was wrong about Higgins. And you were like, no, no, no. His, his arm was being held and they missed a pass interference penalty. And we went back, me and my buddies, I went back. I was like, wait, I got to see this uh, Higgins drop again. And I was like, oh, Farhan was right. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't on T. That wasn't on my guy T. There you go. So regardless, uh, like Mahomes lost the football game. Anything else is nonsense. Mahomes lost the football game. The best player in the NFL lost the football game. And Joe Burrow, un- unbelievable. Like, just the the swagger, the confidence, all of it. Like, I'm looking forward to telling his story again. You know, I have had a chance to get to know his dad a little bit, right, over the course of, of time. He was introduced to me by Wally Buono, mm-hmm. who played with him in Montreal. And uh, he was coaching at Ohio, and then Ohio had recruited one of my players so we we chatted a bit, and I texted with him after Burrow won the Heisman, and again after he got taken number one overall. So, um, you know, good for him. I mean, if you if you remember his Heisman speech when he won it, and how much the city meant to him, like Burrow's a great story, right? And and Matt Stafford's a great story, and and it'll be two fresh new stories we can tell in the Super Bowl. So I'm in LA now. I'm coming home today. I'm coming back in a week. So I'm looking forward to to telling those stories. That game yesterday was remarkable. J- uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is who we thought he was. Um, is who we thought he was. Yeah, exactly. The second when he skipped the game, that one screen pass, that was amazing. Yeah, but the second the game got put in his hands, right? Like, which wasn't until the last two series, and, and up yeah. until then, the the sole focus for the Rams was take away the run game. You guys challenged our manhood and said we couldn't hold up physically against the run. That we're a bunch of finesse pass rushers, and. They held up against the run. Unbelievable. The running backs were 19 carries for 48 yards. That's ridiculous. This is a team that had 75 carries for 291 yards in the two previous games against the Rams. They shut down the run. They spent the entire time. And once it became a tie game and it had to get put in Jimmy's hands, it was over. It was over. It was three and out with three pass plays that all could have been picked. And then two and a pick. Like, he's trash. He is trash. Yeah, he's well. He's better than some starting NFL quarterbacks, but he's not nearly good enough to win a win a Super Bowl. I don't think. Yeah, not good enough at all. So, who's who do you got? Who do you got? Well, well. So I bet I was like the biggest Bengals believer all season, right? Like 
hard to find hard to find maybe Joe Burrow himself. Like hard to find someone who had more skin in the game on the Bengals all year. And then this week I got nervous. I thought they'd lose to the Chiefs. I think that display of, of the Chiefs against the Bills, like I finally got I finally was like, okay, they're 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 they've reached their peak. They're not gonna win another game here. And so two things that I did that that really pained me. I bet heavily on the Chiefs and lost. And I also bet heavily on the over and lost. And I cashed out. I cashed out. I had a, a Cincinnati Bengals to win the Super Bowl bet. I had that bet from week 16 or 17 uh, at really good odds. And I cashed that out before this week's game. All of those things pain me. Pain me. I'm, I'm really upset with myself. But. When the Rams went down to the 49ers 17-7 and I'm down like 200 bucks on the weekend or on the day really and just like really struggling on my bets, I just absolutely shit hammered the money line <laughs> for the, on the Rams down 17-7 with good odds, like three to one odds almost. And uh, and that made up for it. I end up I end up the week even, which is exactly what happened to me last week too, Farhan. So I think I'm not going to bet on the Super Bowl in advance. I'm just going to do it in real time. Because I seem to be far better at that than I am at picking games uh, ahead of ahead of time. I, I think the Bengals are going to win it, though. Uh, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't. I'm having a difficult time picking against them anymore, right? And I mean, and I did pick them to win earlier in the playoffs, just not in this game against the Chiefs. And I, when I look at it, I just, you know, the Rams are better, right? They're, like the Rams defense is better. And, you know. I they believe, are. and I believe oh, more. Yeah. I believe more in the Rams receivers. That, that front right? seven is going to terrorize Burroughs. Like for me, you give me Cooper Cup and OBJ, I will take them over Jamar Chase and T Higgins, right? Oh, and, sure. and, and I think Chase and Higgins are great. Like you know, Higgins semi convinced me that he's legit. But if they get if they get Higby back, if they get Higby back for this game, and uh, I think. Um, Cincinnati, I lost their tight end as well. They hope to get him back. So I'm curious to see what the injured pieces look like coming back, but. You know the offenses, the offenses can match, but I just think the Rams' defense is significantly better than the Bengals' defense. So on paper, I should be taking the Rams, but I don't know how you bet against Burrow, right? The guys, the guys is just ridiculous, and he just finds ways. And you know, even like watching his celebration at the end of that game, it was not over the top by any stretch yeah, of the imagination. So cool. Right. Like he was Joe cool. And he's just like, okay, well, we're here. This is kind of cool. Let's get to the next one. Right. Like, you know, so like, I, I like that. And this is a guy when I watched him play in that national championship game and people are wondering, you know, he hasn't been down this road before. And he just killed it. He just crushed it in that national title game. Um, I, I, I'm having a difficult time betting against him on, on any level, even though I do think the Rams are better. And I think they're worthy three point favorites, especially playing at home. Um, you know, and Stafford's a great story too, but I, you know, and Aaron Donald winning one for him is a, is a great story too, right? And Von Miller and others have talked about trying to get one for him and help him cement his legacy. Do Donald's going to be all over Burrow. Yeah, and we'll see if he can escape because, you know, the Chris Jones play, Chris Jones makes one tackle and that game is over. But um, yeah, it, it'll it'll be interesting yep. to see if he can get it done. No, but if, uh, if, uh, if, if I think Joe Burrow is going to win the Super Bowl, if Joe Burrow wins the Super Bowl, he's going to have to get sacked six or seven more times minimum. Um, but I, I like two things I really like about the Bengals. One, when they picked Jamar Chase, everyone was like, how are they going to protect the quarterback? And it's like they can't protect the quarterback, but they did the fun thing instead of the right thing. 
Yeah. And I like when people get rewarded for being aggressive and fun in sports. So I'm happy about that. And and the second thing is, I don't, I think the I think the Rams front seven will crush the Bengals O line. They will. And and I don't think it's going to matter. I think hmm. Burrow is going to be able to do just enough uh, to make it count, especially because I don't think the Rams offense. Um, I mean, I don't think the Rams' offense is great. I really don't. I thought they struggled mightily against the Niners. I know the Niners' defense is really good. N- Niners' D is twice is twice Cincinnati's, and and you know they 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 didn't they didn't necessarily struggle. He was still over three hundred yards. Since Cincinnati's passing. D held against the Chiefs. They had two hundred. Yeah, no, the Chiefs lost the game. Yeah. Remember, they had two one hundred yard receivers in this game. I mean, both both Cup and and OBJ went off. And they went off with. They some, can't run the ball at all. They couldn't get. They couldn't reliably get short yardage. Their offense is going to be able to move the ball. It's just can. can That's a Bur- big edge for the Bengals. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think Burrow. I like. Look, I'm. I'm not going to doubt Burrow. But I, I, I don't think I don't, they can run. I don't think they can run. And if you're putting, they didn't run this week. They still won the football game. Quarterback was still you know pushing 350 yards. Yeah, and how many interceptions? <laughs> well, it should have been two. Had one. Well, that's what I'm two. saying. That's what I'm saying. So, like. Like uh, Cincinnati, Cincinnati's defense is going to have some opportunities, um, especially because I don't believe that they're going to be able to run the ball on Cincinnati. And so, um, you know, if, if they're if I'm counting on Joe Burrow to overcome a bad offensive line, I, I feel comfortable with that. If I'm going to count on Matt Stafford to uh, have to win the game for the Rams, I'm, I feel less comfortable counting on really? that. So I'm you don't believe Cincinnati you don't believe in Stafford. Our hey. official picks next week. How about that? All right, we'll do it next. Uh, we'll do it uh, no. the final no, show. When, the final in Wednesday fact, before. In fact, I had money on. I had a tease with both him and Garoppolo throwing ints in that game. Jimmy oh, <laughs> in those last two series was so I predictable. Know. It paid off. It was beautiful. All right, uh, listen, before we go, we do want to let you know that Shane Doan, the general manager of Team Canada at these 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, is Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian's guest on uh, this week's Athletic Hockey Show. Meanwhile, NHL Ironman Keith Yandel joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentile on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. Meanwhile, John Merrill of the Minnesota Wild is Mike Russo's guest this week on Straight from the Source. Uh, Russo joins the roundtable with Jesse Granger and Sarah Sivian on the Athletic Hockey Show later in the week as well. As for us, thank you for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Right now, get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. Looking forward to the Blackhawks game tonight. It's not the rivalry it used to be, Drancer, but always a lot of fun when they get to go to the United Center.